Hello, you're listening to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sharp. Welcome to this, our first episode. We are a new project from knowledge sharing platform socialprotection.org. Each month, we will bring you interviews and discussions with experts and practitioners on the big issues in social protection. This month, March, marks a year since COVID-19 really swept over the globe and triggered the first waves of closures and lockdowns in many countries. And since you're listening to this podcast, you probably already know that it was a big year for social protection. Worldwide, governments, international organisations and communities raced to extend safety nets to the many millions of people who lost work or became more vulnerable due to the pandemic. Many of you have been actively involved in that effort in different ways. So in this first episode, we look at the challenges and lessons of COVID-19 from a practitioner perspective. In the month that we also celebrate International Women's Day, you'll hear from four women leaders who have spent the last year responding to economic, employment and health crises wrought by the pandemic. They'll take us through what happened in their own countries, reflect on how the pandemic has changed the way they and others think about social protection and tell us what needs to be done for the future. First up, we'll hear from Cecilia Mbaka. She's the Secretary for Social Development for the Government of Kenya. She also heads the National Social Protection Secretariat in the State Department of Social Protection. The first case of the coronavirus, which is about a year ago, was confirmed in Kenya on the 12th of March. And uh, I was in Nairobi. Within the first two weeks, if I recall well, we had a lockdown. And that meant that uh, most businesses closed and there were a lot of job losses. People were asked to stay at home. And those in the informal economy did very poorly. Uh, schools were closed. And so most casual workers working in schools were all laid off. I, I, I would say we were not ready. I, I think it got us by surprise because with so many job losses, I, I am not sure uh, any of us even knew how we were going to respond to it. So we started discussing what we needed to do on that. And the discussions were mainly revolving around vertical and horizontal expansion, looking at those beneficiaries, for example, who are receiving the cash transfer and topping up with other activities. I think the major issue was limited resources. We were not able to respond so well. Most people could not get assistance. Now, the other thing is that I don't think our systems were very well uh, developed. In Kenya, we do not have a social registry. Mapping people who could have lost their jobs and who needed help was not very easy. I co-chair the thematic working group on social and child protection of the United Nations Development Assistance Framework. Even when we started responding, we were not speaking to each other. The government was doing something, the NGOs were doing something, and other stakeholders were doing something to respond. And I think the reason we were not speaking to each other is we do not have a strong mechanism 
that is able to bring us together so that when such a thing happens, then we are able to speak to each other. So we need to set up our social protection systems. As a country, I feel it is the high time we move very fast and establish a social registry where we are able to map the poor and vulnerable. I think it is high time we think about going universal through the life cycle so that we're not looking at creating systems during pandemic. We need to have them in place so that if such a thing happens, then we are able to respond very fast as a country. We also need to invest more heavily in social protection. We need to identify domestic resources that can be able to support our social protection initiatives. And I think we need to come up with policies that allow us to spend a higher percentage of, of our GDP on social protection. My mom is also in uh, the US. I've not been able to see her for the last two years. She was supposed to come home to Kenya last year in April, but when COVID uh, set in, uh, she could not travel. I believe there are very many people who have not been able to see family members because of the travel restrictions. And I think it has been very uh, difficult for most people. People have different coping mechanisms. But of course, we cannot rule out the fact that there has been a lot of psychological effects uh, to most people. There are many people who will not require, for example, cash transfers, but just giving them some psychosocial support. And I think we should see it as a form of social protection so that even if they have all the resources that they need, they can also be able to cope psychologically in eventuality like the COVID-19. I think in most cases, when people have thought about uh, giving money for cash transfers, and especially like, for example, when we go lobbying for resources in our national treasury, the first question that they will ask you, aren't you making people too dependent? But they do not look at the bigger picture of social protection and what it is able to do to the people. I think that with the COVID-19, some of these attitudes are going to change. When people could not work, they became so vulnerable. They went back home. They started traveling back en masse to their rural areas because they could not cope in the cities. And the government started giving resources, giving them some literal money that could help them cope. I think at that time, people started appreciating why it is important to give people social protection. This is going to have a long lasting um, effect. Cash transfer is not enough in itself. We have to look at things in a more wholesome way because there are people who will not need the cash. They will need other things. So I think we are likely to start thinking more about what else beyond cash. Next, we have Carmen Roca, who is the coordinator for WeGo in Lima City in Peru. She works with informal workers and their associations, people like market workers, waste pickers and domestic workers, whose livelihoods were immediately affected by Peru's hard lockdowns. So a first cash grant was announced by government for people who live in poverty or extreme poverty. 
Now, we are talking about COVID reaching the cities mainly. In urban areas, we were under the belief in Peru that we didn't have poverty anymore, that extreme poverty was eradicated. It only uh, was sustained in rural areas. However, we knew from the work that we have been doing for a long time that people live in very vulnerable conditions and that any kind of shock actually means uh, falling into poverty or falling into conditions that are very difficult to face. So what happened is that because of this belief that urban areas didn't have poverty anymore, we didn't have good directories of beneficiaries of social programs for the cities. So we had a first cash grant for the poor, a second cash grant for independent people, a third cash grant that was called universal for families who did not receive the previous cash grants. By this time, we have the results of a study that WIGO conducted. And what we have learned is that from the sample we had in Lima, that was composed of four sectors, street vendors, newspaper vendors, domestic workers, and waste pickers, only half of them actually got a cash grant. And only 21% of them received the basket of food that was supposed to be delivered by municipalities somehow people were able to survive mostly on family support. That is what we found through the study. People were cooking together, bringing together the little savings that everybody could have and bringing together the little income that would make it through the households. We had a high percentage of people who spent all of the savings. It's 73% of the people that we interviewed. And also people relied a lot on borrowing money from family, friends, and neighbors. So that was about 56%. And we also had 38% of people who borrowed money institutionally. People also sold assets to make it through the pandemic. And that was higher among waste pickers, who are the most vulnerable group that we interviewed. So people took more than one strategy to make it through the pandemic. In our heart was this desire uh, to be able to do more, knowing that people are facing mm. a very hard situation. We couldn't leave home. I mean, as I said, you know, that the streets were patrolled. So it was difficult for us. A lot of phone connections with those who have WhatsApp and a lot of, you know, actual phone calls with the others. We went back to using, what do you call them, conference calls on Skype so that we would dial from Skype several phones, like we could have, for example, leaders uh, connected in 12, 20 phones, but they were actually using their phone lines, not internet. We actually used it also to have meetings with government together with worker leaders. We had the opportunity to do it with the Ministry of Labor in particular in two different sessions, one with trade workers and one with services workers of, of informal employment. Zoom was very difficult at the beginning with worker leaders, but I have to tell you that after all this time, now when we have a Zoom meeting with them, it's heaven compared to what it was at the beginning, you know, with people having trouble connecting. A lot of them were having their children help. We used a recording of voice messages and of small videos of us, you know, sending a message to the workers on WhatsApp and those messages were distributed through their pyramids of communication with their grassroots members, you know, telling them of the advocacy efforts that we were conducting. 
I think also the value of communications, of being a good communicator has been underscored with the pandemic. Many media channels have wanted to interview worker leaders. As you can imagine, there are not that many news to cover when everybody is under lockdown. That gives an opportunity to have messages thrown uh, through social media and journalists picking them up because they're looking for information. So it has brought opportunities as well. You know, it has been a learning curve for everybody. And in terms of dealing with the restrictions ourselves, we also have children, the, the small Wigo team in Lima. So we also had to deal with, with getting them to, to connect to the classroom. Myself, I have a child who was deceiving me for a few months, telling me that his classes, his lessons were only 15 minutes long. After 15, 20 minutes, he's coming back to my desk. I'm like, it cannot be. And he's, yeah, because we're going into holiday soon, so the classes are shorter. Then because we're coming back from holiday, so the classes are shorter. And I was ridiculed in front of everybody because I thought it was true. And I was asking, when is the system going to change? And they're like, what are you talking about? The classes are 45 minutes long. I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, so that happens. There is one big learning, I think, but I don't think it has yet reached everybody, which is the fact that people who are deemed to be poor, who live in poverty, are not people who are sitting at home with a big sign saying, I am poor and waiting for social programs to address that somehow. People who live in poverty are people who are always working. They find something to buy at a central market in the city where everything is cheap and they sell it somewhere else. They work at somebody's home as a domestic worker. They're recycling waste. They're sewing for somebody. They are always doing something. So I guess, we understand now that an emergency response has to do with income in the city because we don't have animals, we don't have hens to have eggs, we need money to buy food. That's an emergency response. Also to deliver food baskets, of course. But what we need is for people to have access to some support for their productive activity. So if it is a small credit, if I am in some sort of trade kind of work, if it is uh, training, or if it means for a domestic worker to be able to start a small business, very small. I am talking about working capital that is less than $100. That kind of, of support is important and has a different face, a different look for each sector that you talk about. So, you know, that is something to think, but also domestic workers, are the main source of childcare in cities. You know, women who are working rely on domestic workers to care for their youngest children while they go to work. So the fact that they could not work was a heavier toll on women, working women, but also prevented domestic workers from having an income and they didn't have any other source of income. While if you had established the protocol and giving them a permit to go out to work, maybe things would have been easier. Meeting workers need like childcare, like some sort of health insurance, and also the protocols to have work in sanitary conditions, as well as the productive side that I'm telling you about, the economic support is very important.
Next, we'll hear from Sri Kusumastuti Rahayu. She is the leader of the Social Protection Policy Team at the Secretariat for the National Team for Accelerating Poverty Reduction in Indonesia. The Secretariat was immediately busy advising the Indonesian Vice President and Ministers on how Indonesia should respond to the pandemic. During COVID-19 last year, our work, our analysis and our recommendation have suddenly become very relevant for policymakers, especially at the national level. We quickly realized that closures would impact many workers and businesses. We started to talk internally, and then we talked with the ministries, and then we proposed some of the possible safety nets that the government should implement. We have a food program and a conditional cash transfer for children in poor and vulnerable families. In addition, the government provided cash for up to 40% of the population who did not receive any program before. The government also expanded the subsidy for social health insurance so that more people have guaranteed access to health care during the pandemic. There was some disagreement about what should be done at the beginning. Our team suggested that the government should provide assistance for all, up to 80% of the population, in the form of one program with a single amount every month. Many are suffering, right? And many programs may confuse people. But the government decided to expand the existing program instead. A big part of my job is to do research to inform policy making, but it hasn't been easy to do research in the last year. I initiated a study that was supposed to be implemented last year, but I have to cancel part of it. It's difficult to interview the elderly over the phone, right? In the field, if people have difficulty responding, we can ask family to help. But, you know, we can't go into the field and put elderly at risk. I like to talk to people in my neighborhood about their experiences with the pandemic, talking to the street sellers as well who pass by to my house. They told us that they are impacted, but... Also, they got help from the community and also some of them get the assistance from the government. Because of the pandemic, the government is now talking a lot more about adaptive social protection. The government and the people are more aware about the importance for people to have savings and insurance. More people, especially in the youth, like my daughter and son and their friends, are more aware on their health too. I do really hope that the pandemic really teaches our government that comprehensive social protection is crucial especially during a crisis of this magnitude. 
The government response to COVID has been quite comprehensive, but only very few elderly and people with disabilities receive transfer. That's something that I'm now working on. So this year, the team and I will work on the concept so that when the government decides it is time to put this program in place, we will be ready. This is really important to me and the team because the number of elder people is increasing. They are the poorest of the population. Only 12% has pension plan and less than 2% receive social assistance so far. And they have already contributed to the economy for years. The expenditure of the household with people with disability is 30% higher than other households. So it is an important gap that I hope the government can fill soon so that every citizen in Indonesia have the social protection. And finally, Dr. Hania Shalkami is an Associate Research Professor in the Centre for Social Research at the American University in Cairo. She was part of a team that originally piloted Egypt's Takaful and Karama program. Takaful is a conditional cash transfer targeting vulnerable families with children, while Karama reaches poor citizens over the age of 65 as well as people with disabilities. Takaful and Karama was expanded as part of Egypt's social protection response to COVID-19. Here, she reflects on the performance of the program she helped to design. The COVID moment that you're talking about was an eye-opener at three levels. So the first is to realise how significant this program was for its beneficiaries because it really was a lifesaver. The current minister, she was instructed rather than to increase the, the amount, to increase the number of people on the program because it had become such a, a lifeline. The second wake up was to say, my goodness, this program has no health vision at all. How can we have an attendance conditionality when we have not in any way addressed hygiene in schools? The schools, if they don't have running water or if they don't have a sink that is accessible to children, never mind toilets. And the third one was the inadequacies of the program. This program has, on the one hand, created a great asset for Egypt, which is a registry of applicants. So there are 12 million people who are covered by this program, but about 30 million who are on the database. People who applied, who are near poor or near the cutoff point for, for allocation. You have this data and you're not doing anything with it. That was a realization how no one is prepared to use the rest of this database. The link between social protection and COVID has stayed at a rhetoric of poverty. And it hasn't made a dent in the massive problem we have of low pay. So if Egypt has one problem, it is low pay. 
And the only way to fix it is to have markets that are viable enough to fix it or universal guarantees of income or insurance. But for the government to be thinking of social protection as redistribution, it's easier for the government and almost safer to focus on the most in need, this language of the most, the poorest, the weakest, and so on. But the lower middle class, the the badly paid, which are most people, no, it hasn't affected that. I had it in June, yeah, and uh, it was a moderate case. I I didn't have to go to hospital. There's a dear friend of mine who's a a Coptic nun who works in the rubbish collectors community. So she was calling me about something and, and I told her I have COVID. And she very kindly told the community, I'm a, I am a Muslim, I'm by birth. And when they started praying for me to get well, I started to cry because I, I didn't feel so vulnerable. And it was their kindness that made me feel vulnerable. So I'm on a day-to-day basis, I'm fine. On a more <laughs> uh, essential level, I'm really troubled. It's like it's a losing battle. This is just the basics of the fact that there is running water in the tap and therefore I can wash my hands as much as I want. And you think of children who are, or now schools are closed, they're going to go back in a few days, who have no running water, people who have lost their jobs or can't do their work online, so they're continuously at risk. I think we really have to have a public health vision or paradigm for social protection because public health has become a sort of residual, a few services and vaccinations. In Egypt, we have no public health programs of any kind for men above the age of six years. Nothing. Not even a checkup, not a screening, nothing. And this is a source of distress and burden and inequality. I I should add that I'm a medical anthropologist by training, so I'm supposed to know that pandemics and epidemics are becoming more and more common. And yet when I was involved in a, a social protection program, Uh, none of this reflects itself in the program. So I think that's what has to change. In terms of Egypt, it makes me very happy to know that 3.8 million families are on this program and that it's just, this is just a confirmation of the fact that some acts of redistribution, simple, straightforward ones are needed and they should not be politicized. Thank you to Cecilia, Carmen, Ibukus and Hania for sharing those experiences. Now before we go, we'll end with our Quick Wins segment. Each month, we'll ask a guest to give a quick roundup of research, news, achievements that have sparked their interest and that we think you should know more about. I have with me here Charlotte Bilo, who is a researcher at the International Policy Centre for Inclusive Growth, that's IPCIG. Charlotte, what have you brought for us today? I do. Yeah. So there's a lot of studies and surveys out there right now on how the pandemic has increased the burden of unpaid care work on women. And on that, last week, actually, Zilke Stab and Laura Tuke from UN Women, together with Professor James Hines, 
they published an article in the Feminist Economics titled Don't Let Another Crisis Go to Waste, the COVID-19 Pandemic and the Imperative for a Paradigm Shift, which I thought was uh, really interesting because they basically called for a paradigm shift in that article away from a purely market-based approach to macroeconomics to one that puts social provisioning at the center and includes non-market goods such as care work which we've seen is so important and which is usually not included in economic thinking. For example, a lot of research has been done over the past years on calculating the monetary value of unpaid care work as part of GDP. And one practical implication of this shift, of this paradigm shift that they're proposing is to enhance first gender responsive social protection and to support, for example, unpaid caregivers with benefits, such as care allowances, but also to include them in pension schemes, which they are often not eligible for because of their working trajectory. Yes, there's been so much discussion uh, and I think lived experience about how COVID-19 has increased the care burden of care and especially for women, but much less in the way of policy action. Yes, definitely. The UNDP and UN Women developed a gender tracker on this, which shows that only, I think, about 8% of all the social protection and labor market measures that they mapped, which were over 1,300, directly addressed unpaid care work. Yeah, that's really striking, isn't it? What else have you brought for us, Charlotte? There is a podcast that I really like. It's called Poverty Unpacked, hosted by Kiki Rowland at the Institute of Development Studies. And uh, what I really like about uh, this podcast is that it brings a variety of perspectives on poverty, um, looking not only at dimensions such as obviously lack of income and material deprivation, but also on things like the stigma associated to poverty. And it talks about, yeah, these hidden sides of poverty, not only in the global south, but also in the global north, which I think is really interesting. Yes, I'm a big fan of that podcast as well. And for listeners of this podcast, if you found us, you may be interested in the really great overview of the social protection response to COVID-19 that Poverty Unpacked presented last year. Yes, definitely. And I also really enjoyed the one about shame of poverty with Mary O'Hara in which they talk about the shaming and blaming of those living in poverty in the US and the UK and uh, the consequences of this. Thanks so much, Charlotte. We'll put links to all of these resources in our show notes. Thank you, Jo. And thank you for joining us on this first episode of the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org, which is the place to go online for free information, research and community on all things social protection. You can follow us on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and look for us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram and YouTube. Send us a message telling us about your quick wins or share something you think our community needs to know more about. And finally, subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast provider, And we would be very grateful if you could post a review too. Back next month. See you then.